Well, good evening. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church to observe Good Friday. If you haven't been with us for a Good Friday service before, it's a little different than what we would typically do on a Sunday morning. For starts, it's on a Friday. Why is that? Well, the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ died on the cross on a Friday. He was laid in a tomb, and then three days later, he rose again on Sunday. And that's what we're going to celebrate this Easter, this, this coming Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. But you can't have an empty tomb without there first being a cross. And that's what we think about on Good Friday, the cross of Christ, his death on the cross, not for his own sins, because Jesus had none, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins, bearing the weight of all of our sins and suffering the punishment that we deserve for our disobedience to God's commands. So when we consider the cross of Christ, we consider the weight of our own sin, how unrighteous we are in ourselves and that we stand before a holy God. And we consider the grace of God in giving us his son to die in our place. That's what makes Good Friday good. So you'll notice that when we remember Good Friday, it's with a different tone than what you would expect on a Sunday morning. It's, it's more somber. What tonight's going to look like is I'm going to be doing a lot of readings from Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Christ from Matthew chapter 27. And that reading is, is hard to hear. It's hard to hear what happened to our Lord. It's hard to hear the people beating him and mocking him, the death that he died. But we need to consider that. We need to reflect on that, that that's the death that we deserve. And interspersed with that reading, we're going to sing songs, but you'll notice that many of these songs are sad songs. They're they're sober. They consider the weight of our sin and the death of our Lord. But if Jesus hadn't died, then there would be no substitute. We would still be in our sins. We would still deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus did die. And that's what Pastor Ryan is going to show us from the book of 1 Peter when he stands up to preach a sermon that Christ died for us and so we have hope that our sins are forgiven. Because not only did Jesus die, but he was raised. And that proves that God accepted his sacrifice. So that's what we're thinking about tonight. This is a very special night. It's an important night for us as we prepare to receive the good news of Easter Sunday. So before I start this reading from Matthew 27, let's pray together, let's pray for our time, and then we'll hear from God's word. God, we do thank you for the cross of Christ, the cross that each one of us deserves, the wrath that that is due to us because we have sinned against you, sinned against you in our thoughts and in our words and our deeds and the things that we've done and the things that we haven't done. We've sinned against you by not loving you the way that you've commanded us to with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And we haven't loved our neighbors ourselves. And Jesus did all of those things perfectly. And yet he died. He was the one that suffered your wrath in our place. That's love. That's the ultimate expression of love for God and love for neighbor, love for us. So God, I pray that you would help us to consider the love of Christ that's exampled in the cross, that you would consider the 
the grace that you've made available to us through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, that we would reflect on those things, that we would take them to heart, and that you would prepare our hearts for the good news of the resurrection, the good news that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. This is from Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put the money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let us stand now and respond and join our voices in song.
stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want for me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his 
saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of a life are ransomed, Shed for us his precious blood. Here is love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness. 
As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the thing 
sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it 
said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. You came from heaven's throne Acquainted with our sorrow To trade the debt we owe your suffering for our freedom the lamb of god in my place your blood poured out my sin erased it was my death you died i am Sin undone, the cross 
Thank you for what we have heard read from the scriptures and what we have sung together this evening. The truth, the history, the glory of it all. Help us now as we look at one portion of your word and uh, give intent in some prolonged time to, to think on it. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your presence with us. We pray for clarity. We pray for conviction. We pray, Lord that we would confess afresh our Savior this evening who is the one who died in our place and was raised on the third day. We pray in his name. Amen. You could be seated. And let me do my part to welcome you this evening to this Good Friday service of Desert Springs Church. Uh, so whether you're in this room or uh, in a overflow room in this building or tuning in online, uh, we're so glad you have done so. You know, many of us are unashamed, somewhat vocal even at times, about living life for the weekend. There was that great rock song in the 80s by Loverboy, working for the weekend, right? Everybody's working for the weekend. Well, for some of us, that's, uh, that's still our anthem, and we sing it throughout the week to get through, and we sing it all the louder as Friday gets closer. Uh, for many of us, work is the necessary evil that pays for the stuff that we really want to do in the weekend. And the weekend is what makes the workdays tolerable. Well, I don't want to take time tonight to offer an alternative outlook on work, though the Bible does have an alternative outlook on work, one that is more hopeful than what Loverboy has told you. I want to suggest instead of living for the weekend, though, in meaning by the weekend, the next weekend, and the weekend after that, that we should live every day in light of one specific weekend that we've been singing about this evening, the most significant weekend ever, the most important weekend that has ever happened, a weekend now almost 2,000 years ago that we're rightly still celebrating. It was a weekend that shattered the earth and changed all of history and all of eternity. For this year's Good Friday and Easter services, I thought I'd direct our attention to a passage of Scripture which explains, in short order, it explains the significance of the cross on that historic Friday and also the significance of the resurrection on that glorious Sunday. My hope is that we would more and more live in light of those two pillars making up one weekend. I want you to see that what Jesus did in that historic weekend in dying on the cross and walking out of the tomb on the third day is of infinitely more relevance 
and significance and importance than anything you've ever done on your best of weekends in the past and anything you could ever hope for in any weekend still to come. 1 Peter 1 is our passage. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. We'll have it up on the screens. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21 is our passage for this weekend. We'll look at four verses Two verses on the cross this evening, and two verses on the resurrection on Sunday morning. You can think of these two messages as one very short series, Ransom and Resurrection. Tonight we'll consider being ransomed with precious blood, verses 18 and 19, and then on Sunday we'll consider how Christ was raised for our faith and hope. That's the language in our passage, as you'll see as I read it. We're beginning in the middle of a sentence in verse 18, at least in the English Standard Version that I'll read from. So it's true that we're picking up in the middle of a thought or argument in verse 18. And yet for our purposes this evening, I think it'll work to just begin in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, we'll read on on Sunday morning. You can read on before then on your own time if you'd like, but tonight we'll focus on verses 18 and 19. And before we get into the details of these two verses, let me explain up front why they're needed. Why do we need these specific words? Why today? Why us? Well, it's needed because the passage, you might notice, doesn't start with us, even though it does relate to us. It's easy to come to religion simply looking for immediate benefits, life-changing lessons, you know, advice for life improvement, well, that's starting with us. And the Bible always starts with God. In the beginning, God. That passage and pretty much every other passage starts with God and is first and foremost about God. It's relevant for us, but it doesn't start with us. We need verses like verses 18 and 19 also because it's possible to be religious even under the banner of quote-unquote Christianity or evangelical, but have a kind of Christianity that is pretty devoid of Christ and pretty devoid of the cross. The sociologist Christian Smith coined a phrase in a book he wrote back in 2005. He coined this phrase to describe the spirituality of church-going American teens. It was about teens when he wrote the book. I think the, the term um, equally applies to adults, especially now, just as much as teens. But three words that Smith used to describe American spirituality, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Notice the aim with that kind of religion. It's therapeutic. 
It's about helping me. It's about improving me. It's about getting along. Notice the means of that kind of religion. It's moralistic. It has its to-dos. And it has some advice, suggestions, or even commands. But it's all moralistic. And notice the quote-unquote God behind that kind of religion. It's deistic. It's not theistic. It's deistic. It's deism. It's a God who's distant. He's out there. He might be tapped into for some help, but otherwise, he's just this being out there somewhere. And notice what's missing with that kind of religion. Christ is missing. The cross is missing. Blood is missing. Atonement is missing. The Bible really is missing. And I think Smith's description of much of American spirituality is all too apt. There are churches all over this country this weekend, successful-looking churches, large attendant churches, that essentially are only teaching moralistic, therapeutic deism. There's little Bible, and there's little to no cross. We also need passages like these verses in 1 Peter 1 because it's possible to, uh, this is a little closer to the truth, a little closer to home, it's possible to have a place for Jesus and even his cross, but it's a cross without content. It's a cross without significance. It's a cross without meaning or theology. I remember when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out in 2004. I just realized I'm dating myself with references to 2004 and 2005. Nevertheless, I remember going to the theater on opening day to watch The Passion of the Christ. It was a packed theater, and people were completely gripped, and many of them were weeping. Some were sobbing. I certainly don't know the heart of anyone there. But I had to wonder whether all who were moved by the violent depiction of the crucifixion, rightly violent, I mean the crucifixion was, but whether they really understood what the cross was all about, why it was needed, who it was for, why Jesus had to die. And I suspect not all there who were moved by the depiction of the cross, understood the cross savingly. And that's a terrifying possibility. It is possible to be interested in Jesus. It is possible to show up for church every now and then. And it's possible to be even moved by the crucifixion, but not really understand what it's about and not yet apprehend what it means for you. Well, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 tells us, and it tells us in power-packed fashion. These verses are thick. They're dense. They require some slow consideration, some explanation. That's why I'm here, to try to walk us through some of the things you might not know in what it says. But I think what we'll see is that it doesn't beat around the bush. It doesn't hold anything back. The answers are here. And this is true religion. This is true faith. This is true Christianity, not moralistic, therapeutic deism.
This here in these verses is about the ultimate weekend, not whatever you're hoping to do this weekend or next. Our passage begins with that word, knowing. Knowing you were ransomed, verse 18, meaning that it's written to a people who already know this, who already have this. But how relevant it is for even those of us who don't yet know it, who don't yet have it, who for us it maybe isn't true yet. You haven't yet come to know. Well, throughout this little study of these two short verses, I hope you, you'll be asking yourself, wait, do I know this? Should I know this? Is this true? Is this knowable? Is this worthy of my attention? And could I possibly leave here tonight being included among those for whom it says, knowing you were ransomed? In a word, that's what the cross is all about, this word, ransom. That's what the cross was. It was a ransom. It's what it does. It ransoms those who trust in it. Those who know it, it says here, well, that could also be implied to mean those who believe it, those who have put their hope in it, those, are, those who are putting their eggs in this basket of Christ. They are, past tense, ransomed. We don't use that word ransom much in our day, in our culture, though another Mel Gibson movie would give you a clue. There's a movie called Ransom. His son is kidnapped, and he has to pay the ransom. That's what a ransom is. It's a payment made by one for someone else's freedom. The word ransom or redeem, depending on how you translate it, it was used in ancient Greco-Roman world, in that world, to, to speak of uh, the slavery, the, the, the purchase, rather, of, of someone's slavery and purchasing their freedom but it's even more relevant to the meaning of ransom in our passage is the background in the exodus story in the second book of our bibles the book of exodus the israelites there were slaves in egypt under pharaoh but god through moses began to announce that he's going to redeem or ransom his people and that's what he does. He frees them from bondage and slavery, freeing them not from, not to being self-willed, not, not being self-autonomous, being freed from bondage and slavery to God himself and unto his worship. Now, one way in which the ransom illusions break down as far as how Peter uses it here, is that we weren't victims in this equation. We need a ransom. We are in bondage. But unlike slaves who are wrongly enslaved, and unlike God's people, the Israelites, who were wrongly enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we've done this to ourselves. We've enslaved ourselves. That's why we need a ransom. We have put ourselves there willfully. Yes, in, in one sense, we were born there according to the Bible, but, but it's also true that each of us has personally and willfully contributed to our sentence of guilt and our need for pardon and ransom. I remember when our kids were little, 
when they had done something wrong that warranted a form of discipline, I remember that Sarah and I would sometimes say, well, you have chosen discipline. You have chosen this. We wanted to make clear sometimes that this wasn't our bad attitude. This wasn't us having a bad day. This was their doing. This was their choice. They did this. You got to know that in this equation with you and God. You got to know that whatever wrong others have done to you in the course of your life, whatever you think society or parents might owe you, and I'm not discounting any of that, whatever other debts are outstanding to you because of things done to you, you have to understand even most importantly, there's something you've done to God and something you owe before God. There is something that is outstanding. You have a debt to God. And if you don't come to fully realize that, then you will never come to see that what you need is a ransom. You'll go looking for something else. The ransom doesn't make any sense if you don't think you're in trouble and in bondage. Mere moralistic, therapeutic deism will probably do for you if you don't think you need a ransom. So Jesus' death upon the cross, for those who know they need this, his death was a ransom, a payment. It was a payment made to the high court of heaven, a payment made to the full because of Jesus' infinite worth. Now Peter will go on and talk more about the specifics of that payment and use different words and imagery, but notice he next refers to what we've been ransomed from. Ransomed from, verse 18, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And this is basically our outline. It's just the words in the text. I won't put it up on the screen for you. We're ransomed from, we're ransomed with, and then under with, there's gonna be things we're not ransomed with and things we are ransomed with. There's our outline. What are we ransomed from? The feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. Now here's where the lines of responsibility get crossed and intermingled a little bit. Are our wayward ways our own doing? Yes. Do those wayward ways have nothing to do with others or society, influence, environment? Not exactly. Others have been involved. Our wayward ways, according to Peter, are not just in us and not just our own doing, but they are also caught and taught. Whether Peter is writing to Jewish Christians or to Greek Christians, and there's some debate, it doesn't really matter. We all have feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. And we all need to be freed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. The Bible, you should know, has many different ways of talking about sin. That's the word I've used thus far, sin. That word sin means transgression. It's as if God has drawn lines and we've just crossed them. We are habitual line steppers. We're always crossing God's lines. The Bible also talks about missing the mark or falling short. 
You might think of like the way you, you, you shoot a bow and arrow and you don't hit the bullseye. You've missed the mark. Except you, you, don't, you didn't even come close. And, and I don't either. Everything we do is just, just drops. It's, it's 10 feet short. It's way off in the trees. Everything's off. The Bible says we're under a debt. This guilt, that's one way of thinking about it. Judicially, another way is financially. There's debt. Or in terms of what's ceremonial, blemish. That's one way of describing sin and our, our plight. There's a blemish. We've got, we've got blemishes when we need to be whole and pure. Or idolatry. That's another way in which the Bible talks about sin. Idolatry is other gods. Other gods can be statues. Other gods can be material things. Other gods can be ourselves. You can be like God. Those are all ways of talking about sin. Various wordage for sin, and with each a word picture, well, each has their own significance. Each contributes something to the overall picture. One might contribute more to the significance of our sin, or the heinousness of our sin, or the willfulness of our sin, or the unfixableness of our sin, at least in our own doing, or the futility of our sin, the senselessness of our sin. And that's what Peter is getting at. With the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We should be very glad that this description of our problem is in the Bible. Most of us have lived long enough to notice that some of the stupid and painful things that we've done didn't just come out of nowhere, but these are things that we have learned from others, things we have seen others do, things that others have enticed us to do. It might be the influence of family. It might be the influence of friends or the influence of society and the media. It might be influence on the issues of Anger or bitterness and resentment or racism or laziness or substance abuse or sexual dysfunction. No two people have the same stories and the same influences and the same struggles. No two people have the same sins. We're not saying that. But all people have sin, and all of us have come from a really long line of sinners. It's in us. We inherited it. What a bad inheritance that is. We shouldn't minimize our own part. No, we are culpable. But we should thank God that he understands the complexity of why we do what we do. God knows perfectly what is individual responsibility and what has been influenced, what is willful and what is societal. And of course, he knows the strands of that crazy web better than we could ever know. But here we get a hint of the complexity of that crazy web, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We get a word on the futility of those ways. Oh, they're futile. Rebellion is futile. Godlessness is futile. 
Ignoring God is futile. The pursuit of satisfaction in this life without God is futile. And we also, in these words, get a great piece of hope, a great bit of hope about the possibility of freedom from the futility of the ways we inherited from our forefathers. Jesus died to ransom us from that stuff, from that thing, from who you think you are. Just feel that hope. Just envision this, that this is why Jesus came, and this is already in the past. This is what he did. This is what he does for for people like you still to this day. He frees them from the futile ways that they inherited from their forefathers and foremothers. He can free you from the penalty of all that. He can free you from the power of all of that. How? How? How does he do it? If you know the ugliness of those ways and the difficulty of breaking all those bad habits, it can seem like nothing can ever free you from the futility of your life. Well, Peter gets into the particulars of that ransom then. Notice he states it first negatively, the end of verse 18, what we're ransomed what we weren't ransomed with, and then positively in verse 19, what we were ransomed with. He says we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's how every other ransom goes. A payment is made at a great price so that someone can go free. But our kind of plight, our kind of problem can't be ransomed with money. Or riches, not with all the riches in the world. The richest man or woman in the world is just as helpless and hopeless before God as the poorest one is. God isn't going to be impressed with a billion dollars, if you even had it. And what a word that Peter has for us about the about the finest material possessions this world has to offer, silver and gold. What does he call them? Perishable. They're perishable. The finest, most durable, longest-lasting substances on earth, Peter likens them to old fruit that sat out on the kitchen table too long. So obviously our souls... Our debt, our spiritual bondage, can't be fixed with what is perishable, not silver or gold. It's got to be longer lasting and more important than that. And if I can just add something that Peter doesn't mention here, and I think he'd say yes, of course, to this. Peter says we can't be redeemed with silver or gold. Let me add, you also can't be redeemed by your own good efforts. You can't put away or cover up your sin by doing good. It doesn't really work that way. It doesn't go away. It's not the scales of justice like you may have heard or like you're hoping it is. That If there's just enough good to outweigh the bad, then you'll get in. That doesn't work. You can't be ransomed with a little bit more good than all your bad. You can only be ransomed with. Not with, but with 
the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. That's the payment for the ransom. That's what we've been singing about this evening. That's what those gospel readings were getting at, but never exactly telling us what it was about, what it was for, what was happening behind the scenes. Jesus was paying a debt. Jesus was, through his blood, providing a ransom so that we could go free. Now let me clarify, there's nothing special in his blood. There's nothing magical that is about his blood. It is human blood, it's not divine blood. The New Testament refers to Jesus' death as Jesus' blood, probably the most common way of describing Jesus' death and our salvation package. I believe in literature, this is called a metonym, a part for the whole. Some sixth grade teacher is going to tell me afterwards, no, it's not. Let's just pretend it is. A part for the whole. This happens all over the place. This is way, the way the scriptures refer to the cross. It's not this wood structure that's in this shape that saves us. Nor is it the blood of Jesus like it's magic. If it sprinkles on someone, poof, they're saved and they have eternal life. No, 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 it's human blood, but it represents his death. It represents the whole. It represents the ransom. It represents the saving package. But it is precious. This blood is precious, not because it's divine blood, but because it's Jesus' blood that did so much. It's precious because of his innocence and righteousness. He didn't deserve any of what he got, what Chase read for us from the end of Matthew. Jesus' blood is precious because it was a sacrifice. It wasn't just a death. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't just an unfortunate demise until he could think of a good plan B, and he did by Sunday morning. It's not that. His blood is precious to us because of his love for us. His death represents love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And his blood is precious because of its success. There is ransom in his blood and only in his blood. Now some of this can be hard to apprehend, I know. But it is essential that we understand it. This is not theological minutia or kind of like theological calculus and all you really need is theological multiplication. No, no, no. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is what you need to know. You might not use some of the same terms that I'm using, but you have to understand that Jesus had to die, that what happened to him on that cross is what you deserve and what I deserve. And what he was doing on that cross was making a payment to the high court of heaven. And that payment can be yours as a gift if you simply believe and trust that it's true and true for you. So the cross wasn't merely an example of Jesus turning the other cheek to his enemies. It wasn't merely an example of humility. And it sure wasn't an unfortunate defeat at the hands of his enemies. You've got to know that. 
You can see the difficulty of getting the cross, like understanding the cross, in the gospel accounts. Maybe Mark is one of the best examples of this, where Jesus gives three predictions of his coming death and resurrection. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. In Mark 8, he says, we're going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me there. That's when Peter, it says, took him aside and began to rebuke him. He didn't get it. A Messiah that doesn't win but dies? Well, they walk on down the road toward Jerusalem. Then in Mark 9, Jesus predicts again, we're headed to Jerusalem, and there the religious leaders and the Romans, they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'll rise. There, the, Mark just puts in the comment, they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. In Mark 10, Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be mocked and spit upon, flogged and killed, and after three days he will rise. And that's when he says this, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the only few comments in the gospel accounts that tell us what the death of Jesus was for. They tell otherwise what it's for in roundabout ways, but as far as explicit statements go, Matthew has one, chapter 20, Mark has the same, Mark 10. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many, and to become a Christian, truly a Christian, Not a Christian in name, not a Christian in heritage, not an evangelical based on who you vote for. To to be a Christian, you have to come to see the true problem, and you have to come to understand that the cross was a payment. Or, if this helps, it's like, notice that in our passage, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again here, the exodus is in view. Specifically, the Passover that took place in Exodus 12. You can read about it there. Passover is an event that's called Passover because it was that night when God's judgment passed over the homes who had expressed their faith in God's salvation by slaughtering a lamb and then taking the blood of that lamb and applying it to the doorposts of their homes. So when God's judgment would roll through that night in Egypt, God would pass over those homes who had blood applied to the doorposts of their home. Again, it was a symbol of their faith and trust. It was all a very substitutionary kind of thing. That lamb, it says in Exodus 12 and here, The same language is used. A lamb without blemish or spot that is needed. A a lamb without any defects, physical defects. Not not because the lamb would do anything spiritual per se, but it had to portray the right symbolic picture. It symbolized the death of the innocent without blemish or spot in the place of those who were guilty. This is why we sang earlier, heaven's peace and perfect justice 
kissed a guilty world in love. How did peace and mercy come? Not apart from justice, but through justice, substitutionary justice. Now, the writer of Hebrews can say that the blood of lambs and goats could never have taken away sins. you got to know that. So the lamb that was sacrificed on that first Passover in Exodus 12, as well as all the sacrifices of all Old Testament times that were made year after year for each believing family, all of that was merely a foreshadow of Christ in his coming. That's, what, that's why John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world the true Lamb of God, the final Lamb of God, who truly takes away sin. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And that's why Peter can later say in his letter, his first letter, Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. And how do we know that that payment was satisfactory? How do we know that the payment of death worked, that, that it met God's standard, that the high court of heaven has been satisfied? Well, we know it by looking back at Jesus' perfect life. That's what was needed. It needed to be a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus was. He was a like sacrifice, so the lambs without blemish, that painted a picture of sorts. That's a type, but it's not perfect. It doesn't really, it's not one-to-one. -one. Lambs can't die for humans. And Jesus took on flesh to be one of us that he might bear our guilt. Look at the cross. You want to know? That justice and mercy kissed? Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus said. It is finished. And as we'll consider on Sunday, we look at the resurrection. The resurrection means that the payment has been satisfied. The debt is canceled. And that weekend of the Good Friday and the glorious resurrection on Sunday, that is truly a weekend that we can live in light of every day, every moment. With that historic weekend that took place already now, almost 2,000 years ago, you don't have to work for it. It's already been worked for, right? The work has already been done, and Christ has done it. So you don't have to live life now from one weekend to the next as if that's the essence of living. I do hope you have a great weekend this weekend. I do hope you have many great weekends while the Lord gives you life. But do you know what will make sense of all the good and horrible weekends still ahead? Do you know what will see you through the best and the worst of your work weeks in days ahead? This. Knowing. Knowing. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. How? Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Do you know this? Do you know this? In the last 38 minutes since I've been speaking, have you come to know this? Perhaps it couldn't be said of you at the beginning, knowing you were ransomed, and you're beginning to wonder, and perhaps with some faith and optimism, could it be true of me now, knowing I have been ransomed? Did Jesus do this for me? I pray that today you'd come to know that, and you would seek it without delay. Christian, brothers and sisters, you know this. You know this. There is so much you don't know and so much I don't know. And in, this, in these crazy days of when we don't even know what to believe, this is presented as true and this is also presented as true and I don't know. You can know this. You do. If you're a Christian, you know this. That's the nature of faith. You know that you were ransomed. Past tense, settled, done. It is finished. You don't have to live like you used to. You don't have to live like mom and dad did. You don't have to live like your old friends do. You don't have to do that anymore. And yeah, I'm talking about that. Whatever that is that's on your mind right now, you don't have to do that anymore, Christian. You've been ransomed from that. It's futile. The precious blood of Christ has freed you. Live like it. Isn't that something worth sharing with others? Isn't that something worth talking about? Isn't that worth giving to someone who doesn't yet have it? Isn't that something to sing about? I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And we never tire of that story. Let's pray. Lord, may some here come to know and love this story, and may it become their story for the very first time tonight. May they join us in saying, I love to tell the story, and I can't wait to tell it to someone who doesn't yet know it. And may we who have known this story for years and decades, may we never tire of it. May we speak of it every chance we get. Why wouldn't we? And Lord, may we sing of it. We will sing of this Savior and his glorious ransom for all eternity. And when Jesus comes again and we have glorified bodies, we will never tire, never bore from this theme. May it be so tonight as we sing. May it be so for our good and for your glory. Amen. I'm to stand and respond and to sing out like we've been ransomed. Men of sorrows, what a
represents you tonight, if you can sing that in first person and it is your song, why don't you just out loud say, Alleluia. Alleluia. If you can't say that yet, if you can't sing that yet and be true of yourself, why not? Let us help. What questions do you have? We may not have the answer, but we may. We'd love to talk with you. I'll be up front afterwards and others will as well. Some leaders will be up front who are here to to meet you if you're visiting or to um, answer some questions about Jesus if you have any, uh, perhaps even to pray for you. Or perhaps you'd say, it's done, it's settled. It wasn't when I walked in, it is now. I want to know that. I want to rejoice with you about that. I, I, prom- I won't snooker you into something else. It's not come up and then we do something else backstage and I get you a, a condo, something like that. No, no, no. <laughs> we just want to rejoice with you. We want to begin to walk with you in this, this walk of faith, this Christian life. 
We're to do it together, just like many of us in this room are doing this evening and will do on Sunday morning. We've got services at 7.15, 9 o'clock, and 10.45. No, we used to have 10.45, 11 o'clock. Now, as far as um, those who are already RSVP'd and registered to come in person in this room, all those services are full. But last I checked before this service, all of the overflow rooms for all three of those services at least still have some openings. So you might want to do that. Uh, If not, tune in to one of those services online uh, on our YouTube page, or you can start just at our website, dscabq.com. If you're tuning in tonight online uh, and you've got questions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us, info at dscabq.com. Let us know how we can serve you and get to know you better. Well, Peter ends his second letter with this blessing and this, this word for us. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 Well, you're dismissed. Hope to see you Sunday morning, if not sooner.